Welcome to the Summer Call Play Podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. We're recording on a Monday. We're getting ahead of the week. What is going on? <laughs> Actually, it's funny though, because last week we procrastinated the podcast. We did it Tuesday afternoon. But honestly, it's not because I don't enjoy it. Yeah. It's because I love podcasting with you so much. It's kind of like a date morning that I want it to be special. I'm like, I don't want this jammed between meetings. <laughs> yeah, but... To be fair, you have a lot going on right now. I think it's, is it finals week? Am I It mistaken? is finals week okay. coming up. I don't know why Stanford put finals week after Memorial Day weekend. That's yeah. a little confusing to me. I think when your age starts with a three, finals week shouldn't necessarily be a thing anymore. Yeah, well, this is my last, this is going to be live. my last classes coming oh up. And my I'm gosh. so excited. Uh, it's funny. I love taking class, but yeah. I'm a little over it at this point. Not going to lie. Like education is such a gift. I'm like so grateful to be getting to learn all the things I'm getting to learn. Yeah. But fuck homework. <laughs> well, you're doing so much real shit that like when you start talking about homework it's like here's this fake thing oh my gosh here's this like entire problem set that is never going to exist in the world ever again yeah Yeah. so that's a little challenging but i do love learning meanwhile you're writing like eight papers um yeah i think that's the problem you love learning but final exam times is like it's almost like the celebration versus test. You are literally testing, whereas the learning process is all celebration. Oh, I'm all about the celebration. None of this testing nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're having a great time here. And I wanted to briefly relay the best fact ever to start the podcast that I just heard. David's facts. Your facts are always so good. Yeah. Thank you. This is this is the story of my life. I just love when <laughs> listeners get a, a view into this. So last week was space facts. Uh, this week is going to be musical facts. Which uh, is funny because, okay, so yeah. I grew up, I never liked musicals, to yeah. be honest with you. I was a Riverdance girl through and through that is so weird so strange well i think it's like well my family we didn't go and see like a lot of live performances that's not something we did we were kind of like struggling financially growing up as a kid so we went and saw river dance as like the only live performance i ever saw and then i was obsessed (laughs) with it going i mean i still sometimes i'll hear river dance come through on like my 2000 um song spotify playlist and i get jazzed when i'm out there i love megan's music musical tastes and occasionally I'll be like, oh, do you mind if I listen to your playlist on this? And then I'll shuffle and then I'll hear a fucking Riverdance song. And I'm like, actually, no, thank you. I don't oh, know where this is about. Riverdance has like the diversity of music there. But yeah, so after Riverdance, my, the next musical I saw was Cats. Yeah. And I was like, WTF are musicals. I don't know if I can do this. But then I got introduced to the joy of musicals by you. Cause you, I mean, you like explored a lot of them in college at Columbia, yeah. which I think is very cool. Well, I think cats can fuck up a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> give, give me a dogs and I'll be in. Um, yeah. So, you know, when I was in college, they would sometimes make you for the curriculum go to musicals. Okay, this is so cool. Why is that? I'm, for my curriculum right now, I'm doing like problem sets and I'm just putting <laughs> in like cosmological constants like we talked about last week. Yeah. Where is the musical curriculum? I don't know. It was so good. I remember watching Avenue Q, which is essentially just a bunch of puppets making dirty sex jokes. It was like, this is my dream. Why isn't the whole world like this? Well, this is kind of what we've done on the podcast. To be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's so true. Oh my gosh. There's definitely uh, a lot of pantomiming going on behind the scenes. Um, But that opened up my mind to this thing. That being said, I'm not like the biggest musical fan. Sometimes I'm like, uh, why the fuck are they singing right now? Like, except for Hamilton. Hamilton yeah, yeah. And Hamilton were, were big fans. Yeah. yeah, I've read some of the pushback against Hamilton recently, and it's like one of those reminders of never read pushback against anything you love. Um, Actually, no. Sometimes I find that it's like getting a hug because we get pushback yeah. all the time, and it's like if Hamilton is getting pushback, yeah, everything in life is getting. Yeah, pushback. I've heard people call Lin Manuel Miranda a neoliberal shill. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds bad. Um, so it's that one sounds of, aggressive. Yeah, it's, people are so aggressive on the internet, but. The musical fact that I want to tell you is about Dear Evan Hansen. Um, I think it won a bunch of Tonys when it came out in 2014. Um, but I heard this on Love it or, the Love It or Leave It podcast, that of the Dear Evan Hansen cast, a number of people have played the main character, Evan Hansen. Of those characters, two separate couples 
exists. So one, Ben Platt and Noah Galvin, both of the original Evan Hansen. Okay, Ben Platt has kind of transformed the yeah. internet, I feel like, on, on Dear Evan Hansen. He's all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I think he's starring in the movie version too. And then Taylor Trench and Ben Levi Ross, also dating, or at least were. I'm not sure if these are still current. Okay, where couples. is the Dear Evan Hansen uh, dating app? We yeah. definitely need that. The success rates of Dear Evan Hansen's or Evan Hansen's dating Evan Hansen's is pretty fantastic. And I think it really gets back to like kind of loving a version of yourself. So to everything about this is the most uplifting story to me. It's like, yes, they love a version of themselves. They love the, uh, the characters they've played. They love the decisions they've made and they're dating that. And so yeah, Dear Evan Hansen dating app, I think is what we need to do sooner rather than later. Along with this fun fact, I also love your joy and enthusiasm about this fun <laughs> fact. So you were doing a workout on the treadmill, which sounded pretty cool. And you came upstairs not telling me about the workout, but telling me about Dear Evan Hansen, yeah. which I think is just like a perfect reflection of your athletic journey. This <laughs> is like doing hard workouts and then coming back and telling me facts. I specifically remember, so I was doing like 30 second pushes on the treadmill just as a double um, on uphill going really fast. And as I came out of one of the pushes, I heard John Lovett on this podcast start talking about this amazing Evan Hansen situation. Um, and for some reason, it just burned, uh, burrowed into my brain in such a way that I'm like, there's so much hope in the world. If Evan Hansen's can find Evan Hansen's to spend the rest of their lives with, we can do anything. That's so true. Well, so I know your treadmill workouts because it sounds like an earthquake catastrophe <laughs> downstairs when you're doing your pushes because you're running so freaking fast. And I think that's kind of cool. But speaking of musicals, last night we actually watched, and this is not a musical, but it's a very cool performance. We watched in and of itself on Hulu. It was incredible. Like, yeah. If you don't have Hulu, find a friend who has Hulu, buy Hulu. I don't know. We're, yeah. not, we're not sponsored by Hulu, but this was an incredible. So essentially it was like, a magician and he was going through his performance that he's done i think 552 times is yes, that the number? that's the number um and they they filmed it for hulu and it was bonkers good yeah it i think left a mark on both of us right um because everything that this magician incorporates with magic is designed to like totally change your perception of yourself and the space you're in and the way it was filmed was beautiful um i can't recommend it highly enough well i think what was really beautiful about it was the fact that so derek magician the, the magician who is performing he struggles with identity himself so he spent like you know hours and hours and hours learning this like sleight of hand magic which yeah. is fundamental to the show and is so cool but what he still what he struggles with is he doesn't want to just be seen as a, yeah. a magician like there's so much more to the show that he's doing and people when they come to the show are just express, expecting this magician to be up on stage and he has this beautiful quote so this is a quote from Derek the magician which I think is so cool there's a magical elephant creature that I reference in the show which is the sum of many parts that shouldn't go together. But they do to create this magical creature. That's the social identity that I've been crafting for myself. I like to traverse multiple worlds. I'm in the performing arts and in the entertainment world. I function as a writer and a magician. I'm fine if someone needs to label me or identify me for their own purposes, if they don't know what else to call me. I find it rewarding to be multiple things at once and maintain these labels and identities and still be able to coexist and be one person. Commercially, though, it's not the smartest. <laughs> I love that. So he's talking about the fact that, like, you know, he just, he's so defined by many different things and, like, putting one word to it is not, not his Well, name. I think it's especially hard as a magician because at least, like, I mean, in the popular parlance, magician is this thing that's kind of like at children's birthday parties. It's not this thing that's designed to open your mind and subvert your expectations to prepare you for these ultimate truths. So what he's talking about there with the magical elephant is fascinating. He needs, it was this um, parable about six blind men uh, analyzing something with their hands and thinking that it's an elephant rather than this magical creature that it actually could be. And it's how all of us are with our identities. Like, you know, I think 
the world is telling us that we are the simplest version of whatever we are. Defined to one word. Yeah, yeah, yeah defined yeah. to one word. Like, yeah. And I, I think I think it's actually really instructive for runners to play because like yeah. so many people say like, I am a runner and I am an athlete. But I think like for me, it's really helpful to find that identity and break that one word into multiple things. Like, no, I'm not just a runner. Like tied to that running identity is the identity of like an adventurer. Yeah. I'm a nature girl. I'm a freaking awkward dancer. I'm a dog <laughs> lover. Like all these different things go into that identity. You're of a being magical a fucking creature. Oh, thank right? you. Right? I mean, you seriously are. And I, I, like as a coach, that's kind of our role is to help people see the magical creature within them. Because I think all of society, almost all the people we meet from early on are telling us, no, you're an elephant. Like not to say elephants are bad, but you're just an And that structures elephant. how you go about and choose that identity, which I think yeah, is yeah. fascinating. You yeah. become the thing that you like embody over time. That's why when kids will have a teacher that sees something in them that they don't see in themselves, they embody it over time and become this thing that is just magic, pure magic. And that's why doing it through a magic show is so cool. It's so fascinating. And the way that he structured this actually, so, I mean, we're not going to go through and like tell the story of the magic show because you really need to watch this yourself, but he had audience members select an identity card from a wall of thousands of different identities. And some of them were, you know, kind of like basic identities or like identities that define like a career, like ophthalmologist or some that defined like your, your personality, like optimist or ridiculous ones like ninja, which is probably <laughs> what I would pick or mystic. And he had, you know, these audience members grab an identity card. And then during the show, he pulled one audience member on stage and within four minutes transformed how that audience member thought about yeah. their identity. And I thought that was so cool. The process of like taking this identity and just shattering it. Yeah. But also like what a beautiful journey that is. And you can help other people do that in, the, in, in like your own life process. Yeah. So he created created this aura of vulnerability. We don't get to exactly how he did it because it will give away some of the story. Um, but when the cards came out, it included so much meaning behind each of them to the point that people were crying when their identity cards were, were played. Because in the identity of I am an ophthalmologist, it was included that I am all of these fucking things behind that. And you're only seeing a picture. And so what I was actually thinking while you're talking is about this athlete I coached. And um, I always thought of this athlete as like, you know, the things society might label them as, you know, I think they were an accountant or something like that. And then they're, a, you know, a good, a, I, I wouldn't say good girl because I don't want to gender it, but like good girl and all these other things. And then later on, I found that they were missing a couple of days of training to go to a bondage convention that, and to me, that was the coolest motherfucking shit in the world because it's like, wow, that if that's just one thing, there's probably 20 other things what amazing identities that we all get to have, but the world can often only see one or two of them. And the problem is if we all believe what the world says, we become that non-magical creature. And that's what I think is so cool though, is, is looking at people. And I think like the process of being a coach, of being yeah. a teacher, of being a leader, it's looking at people and understanding that there's hidden identities beneath like what's on the surface and helping those identities shine. And that goes for everyone yeah. too. That goes for our friends. But what I was just thinking when you're talking is, it goes for our enemies too. Oh, like the people true. we yeah. really don't identify with and don't like um, for whatever reason, they probably are carrying identity cards that have meanings that we could never possibly understand. And getting to a point where that is accepted and okay and like you give them love for that is something I'm Or empathy for on. that because yeah. you don't know where that came from. You know, that comes probably comes from someone looking at them and being like, oh, you know, yeah. you get back to the elephant reference. It comes from someone being like, you are just an elephant. Yeah. You know what I mean? You are not all this like magical creature that contains multitudes. And, you know, I have empathy for that process because damn, that's hard. Yeah. So well, also it made me think too. Yeah. So this whole process made me think of Stephen Colbert because yeah. he has gone on and he's played so many different identities in like performing and on his shows. And it was wild because at the end, uh, the, the credits showed up and he and his wife, Evelyn, were actually producers of the I show. Want, I need to read about how that 
like unfolded. Like they saw the show and then were like, this needs to get on TV. But um, Stephen Colbert is a fascinating story because I heard him on the Smart List podcast and he was talking about his old show, The Colbert Report, one of the most wildly successful, like, you know, humor shows ever where he's playing a right wing pundit. Um, and they were talking about him, to him about like, well, what were the next steps going to be? And he's like, honestly, I just needed to leave that space because playing this character, this identity I wasn't, was eating me alive inside and was actively killing me, uh, not just creatively, but emotionally. And um, weirdly, when he went to the late show and took, you know, David Letterman's role there, he absolutely tanked for the first year because in playing himself, people rejected that version of what his identity he was presenting. I can't imagine that process of like going from playing a character yeah. and then people rejecting who you truly are when you're ready to be vulnerable and show up and do that on stage. Like how hard that is. And I'm sure be. it was a little bit of a re-entry uh, like buzz for him or buzz kill for him because you know, he was probably having difficulty being himself in front of people because he'd gotten used to this fake identity. He'd gotten used to being like almost, and not a magical creature, almost like an evil creature and so being his you know bringing out that magic was hard but best story ever for him is that his late night show is now the highest rated it's doing amazingly um and maybe he's seeing a little bit of himself and those identity cards being read you know gosh that's so beautiful but i also think it gets at like how hard it is to play a character and yeah. how hard it is to maintain that over time and i think like in acting that's so clear like what he was doing but i also think in like the grander scheme of life too what was fascinating for me though about this too was just the idea of like magic in the yeah. mystery so i think for me whenever i go and see magic shows i am like that turd in the punch bowl that's like <laughs> how do they do this magic i'm gonna go google this i'm gonna try out i try to figure out like where all this different sleight of hand comes from but this show was honestly so special to me that it was like i don't want to go yeah. and like figure this out and i actually thought it was really beautiful so derek after the fact um the magician was interviewed and he kind of got at the the idea of the, the power of that mystery he said I found that if you let it pull you out and if you can go the other direction and let the mystery pull you away from what you know and into the possibilities of things you may not understand, that to me is where the important lies. And I love that. The idea of like, what is life? But like letting the mystery pull you away from what you know. And that is so freaking cool. Yeah. And that there's always mysteries there. Um, you know, I, I think that that's the thing I'm just trying to embody in my own life is that this lack of understanding about what everything is and what every, everyone is, is okay. And that the, it's not a failure, you know, that's actually embracing the magic. Like, um, and that if you can do that, oh my gosh, we can help people out so much in their journeys because we're all struggling with that mystery all the time. And, and just the, like letting it be. Yeah. And actually, the, yeah. which I think is so cool. Actually, there's a song and this brings me up. I'm, I'm totally, I'm like showing my true nerd here between yeah. the river dance, but there's a beautiful song by Iris Dement called Let the Mystery Be. It is beautiful and haunting and eerie and like exhilarating all in one. Yeah. So listen to that too, because it, I feel like it goes right along with this. It's the, yeah, the perfect soundtrack. Um, yeah. And I think why magic is so powerful in this setting is that it takes what you're expecting and makes you look so closely because you never know what's going to happen next. And that's kind of what life actually is. Um, so while you're watching this, um, I just say like reflect on the type of person you are, the type of person you want to be. And that you're full of fucking magic and that's the coolest thing ever and to let yeah and let the mystery of that unfold because yeah. like you'll find that out more over time okay but last point on this what i thought yeah. is really interesting so whenever david and i watch shows together you predict things so far in advance and it's actually you're a terrible person to watch shows <laughs> with because 99.9 percent .9 of the time it's right yeah. you're like this is act two this is what's going to happen i oh, know it's no. coming ahead and I then it plays like out and this is the first time we've been watching something and you haven't done that because you're like ah megan i did research i, I saw derek's twitter bio and he said that he was an unreliable narrator so i'm not even <laughs> 
predict what's next. Well, I was I was proud of you in that moment, and it yeah. made it made uh, TV movie watching a lot better. Oh my gosh, you're making me sound like the turd in the punch bowl now. I think we're two massive deuces just hanging out, just floating there at the just top, banging in the punch bowl, <laughs> banging in the toilet. Let's move on. Um, yeah, and I think one of the things when we're talking about identity, awkward transition time is that a lot of thinking about identity also brings up understandings of your own limitations. Um, because I think a lot of the time we're all like, oh, well, we need to be all these things at all the time. We can't just be whatever is natural to our heart. Um, and the story that brought up to me is like, I was like, okay, I need to start being more responsible with money. We're going to invest. Um, and of course, instead of doing a mutual fund or whatever. Which is what I do. We have yeah. very different investment strategies. You're like you're like looking at the stock market every day and yeah. analyzing. You're like putting your coaching coaching hat to the stock market. And I'm like, I'm just going to put money in index funds and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was like the classic bro investor. And I was like, oh, I'm going to invest in this thing. So this was like last April or May or something. And I invested in BJRI stock, which is BJ's restaurants. And I invested in it because, you know, I kind of like their pizza. <laughs> I was, I actually, that was, I asked you that and that was no, but I, answer I, and I was like, David, this is I actually, I actually, uh, actually Googled some things about the company and it was like, oh, all of, all of the things look good. It's great. So I invested in it at like six ish dollars and then I got out at eight ish dollars. I was like, man, you I'm, pumped I'm about like, this. I am so good at this. So like, I'm, I'm going to start investing in more stocks. And I was like, David, yeah. no. <laughs> and then I looked at it the other day and it was up to $60. <laughs> so I I got out at like what? 30% increase. And it's now up like, like 900%. And uh, of course, to, to bookend the story the other week, I was like, oh, Megan, Bitcoin's been in the news so much recently. You think we should invest in some of these cryptocurrencies? And that was right before they all fucking crashed. Um, so if you're out there and you're struggling with like, what are you good at? All these different things. Know that it's okay to stay on the sidelines sometimes, even though you're a magical creature, you don't need to be a magical investor or whatever that thing it's is. It's okay to have an identity as an index fund investor, which yeah, is me. Yeah. I'm like the boring person, but hey. <laughs> Megan's pretty boring, but her computer Computer's not. Oh, actually, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So I had to perform keyboard surgery on my computer the other day. I had a few letters fall out. Yeah. And there's some complicated things on Macs where like there's these little black dots beneath the letters that you have to then transfer. I'm sure so some of our listeners know. I was doing some microsurgery on my on my keyboard, but now as a result, I think I uh, messed up the it surgery goes, a little bit. It makes noises yeah. when I turn it on. Every time she turns on, and it's the slash key just going again and again and again and again. So if you ever get messages or emails from me with a slash key, that's because my computer surgery did not go. I think so. The big lesson is I. I think part of being a magical creature is also like not necessarily being any fucking good at some things. And that's, that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Also, what I've been learning about being uh, trying to be a magical creature at least is putting work in a freaking box. Oh my gosh. This is like my new life mantra. I so, love this. So where did you hear about working about, because to me, I, I, this is the first time I had ever heard anyone say this. So a few weeks ago, I was having a meeting with my mentor who is awesome. She's just like a life boss through and through. I just like look up to her so much and she does a lot in the academic world, but then she also has a separate life in the business world and as a mom and as a runner and like doing all of these really cool things. And I was kind of like, how do you do it? Yeah. Like, I, this, I want to know your superpowers. And she said something to me about putting her academic work in a box. And to me, that was such a cool statement because I can like very, like literally think about my brain, like taking my work and putting it in a box and shutting it down for the night. But what was really funny was <laughs> as soon as she said this, all I could think about was the dick in a box skit from <laughs> SNL. So I told her, I came downstairs to you and I was like, I learned about work in a box. <laughs> it's your work in a box, work in a box, girl. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, their connection to dick in a box is good too, because it's like, uh, you know, it's all, it's like, it's all kind of a it's joke. It's hard to take yourself so seriously. Hard to take this work seriously when it's a dick in a box. <laughs> <laughs> so now our thing in our house is replacing all of the lyrics of dick in a box. Listen to it if you haven't by Lonely Island with work in a box. So 
Christmas. Work in a box. Hanukkah. Work in a box. Kwanzaa. Work in a box. Every single holiday, you work in a box. Which actually we need to get better at because yeah, yeah. for a while we were not taking holidays off. And now I'm like, work in a box. <laughs> <laughs> there are probably some listeners that are cringing so hard right now that their faces have like scrunched up and left their body. But we figure, you know, if we're talking all about identity, we want to embrace our own identity as uh, closet singers of uh, songs about dicks. <laughs> so <laughs> do you want to get to topic one, perhaps? What a great transition, David. You really crushed that one. So topic one, actually, we've gotten a ton of questions on this. A couple episodes ago, we talked about Whoop. I was fascinated about Whoop. I learned about how they had a journal function for tracking sex, <laughs> like sexual activity, and how that related to performance. So I was sold, bought a Whoop, and it's actually transformed me, to be honest with you. Like, I think I'm the type of person I have a pretty high stress load in terms yeah. of like both training and work. And it comes together in a way that is probably not great for my body. And so I've actually had a lot of fun trying to improve my whoop score. And so time. we've learned a lot more about it and thought a lot more about how we might be able to use this in coaching. Um, some of those questions were actually motivated by, we talk about risk-based heart rate not being wonderful during activity. Um, and they're like, well, how can you justify using a whoop in that context? And I think actually HRV tracking is fantastic. Yeah, yeah so at so, rest, it's still- it's So we've gotten a bunch of questions about like, what is HRV? How do you use it for training? Like, what do you think about in terms of these like devices that track it um, from SL, from others? We're going to dive into this right now. So I think first to start just a primer on what HRV is. So HRV is heart rate variability. It looks at how the heart is changing beat by beat as you breathe in and out. And that variability is modulated by the autonomic nervous system. So what the heck is the autonomic nervous yes. system? I co-sign that question. Yes. The autonomic nervous system is composed of two different systems. So one is the sympathetic system. Um, and you can remember that by fight or flight. This is kind of like the classic med school mnemonic. And then um, para the parasympathetic parasympathetic system is the rest and recovery symptom system. And um, so heart rate variability essentially looks at the balance between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic activation. And this serves as a super good proxy for stress yeah. and for recovery and for restoration and adaptation. And that's why it's such a powerful metric. And then HRV, where these measures come from is primarily from rest, which is why like the variations, you know, if you may have heart rate vari variations out there when you're running in terms of the yeah. metrics using to track it, the, the system for tracking at rest is actually much better. Yeah. And it seems like at night, it's pretty darn reliable having worn them for a little bit. Like yeah, it's giving it's, me, it's, it's giving really me cool, really actually. expected things and, and also unexpected things. That's, that's also true. So the principle of this is, is that when you have higher HRV levels, that your parasympathetic system, which is your rest and recovery system, that response is primed and activated. When your HRV levels fall, your sympathetic system, which is your fight or flight system system is more activated. Um, and so you can kind of get an understanding of like how you're tracking, how you're responding to training. It's something that we've, we found really interesting to follow. Yeah. And I think it might be one of the frontiers in coaching and understanding stress. And there's a 2018 review study in the journal psychiatry investigation. Okay. Journal names. We could play such fun games with yeah. journal names. This really sounds like like the CSI of journal names. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like paranormal investigations. I feel like they're talking about aliens and probes and all that good stuff. But basically it found that across all of the different studies, HRV does correlate with stress. Um, the question becomes, how does that um, reply to, or how does that work with athletes in particular, which is a little bit more uncertain. And I, I love the way that they looked at this. So they essentially used, so the, the way that they, they measured stress was doing neuroimaging studies, which yeah. I think is a real, the study design and the study methodology is very cool because it combines these neuroimaging studies and pairing at, that with HRV. Um, and I think that's a really cool application of the science. Yeah. And so with athletes, there's a little bit of cardiac remodeling over time, um, both in terms of the size and shape of the heart and the electrical uh, processes of the heart that might change some lung 
longer term cycles with this. So there are unanswered questions that we're going to get into a little bit. Um, but and I think the unanswered yeah. questions that you're talking about talk about the like causation. So how does like long term exercise Cor correspond and like how what what are the impacts of long term exercise on HRV? Yeah. And I think what you're getting at is the, the is the idea that it's really hard to determine like areas of causation there yeah. because there's so many different processes that long term exercise operates on, yeah. such as like you know the morphology of the heart, the signaling, all of these different things. That HRV is like one of those variables, and yeah. it's hard to know where exactly it falls on like the causation so, pyramid. Yeah, exactly. So HRV is one tool is pretty darn fascinating is, is the basic summary. And, so, and I think it's fascinating when you look at, as opposed to like long-term changes in yeah. HRV, when you do deep dives onto like 30 day periods, 60 day periods of looking at how HRV changes and responds in individuals. Yeah. And so my story actually might be pretty interesting. So I woke up on Saturday morning and felt ready to fucking go. I was so pumped for my long run. You had coffee, you were jazzed. Yeah, yeah. And I, I looked at my uh, whoop results on that day. And my HRV was so low that I might not have had any blood in my body. Actually, I was worried about you. I was yeah, like, yeah. what did you do overnight? Yeah, it dropped so, so low. And I was, I was totally uncertain. I have some theories that might relate to training, but it wasn't until after I finished my run, which was a tough run, that I asked, talked to Megan. And I was like, no shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I talked to Megan about it. And it was like, oh, we got this slightly stressful piece of news on Friday. And um, I was probably just in kind of fight or flight overnight without even realizing I was. So my HRV dropped all the way to 41. If you have any idea of what those numbers are, that's pretty darn bad. That's pretty low. And so I was able to push through on Saturday and was thinking, oh, I don't want to like cater my training to this. And then woke up on Sunday totally wrecked. I was only able to shuffle at like the slowest pace. Addy Dog was looking back at me like, Dude, I am a geriatric dog Actually, and you, you don't got shit. You told me after that run, you're like, I ran a mile and then I sat on the side of the road in the pouring rain and contemplated existence yeah. because you're, yeah, that, that not surprising. It was a happy contemplation of existence, but also a contemplation of whether I should uh, perhaps roll home because running was too hard. Um, and, you know, that's really interesting from a training perspective. It's like, what is causing that? Was it that stressful piece of news? Was it the fact that I did slightly longer strides on Friday and caused an anaerobic stress? So if, uh, on the anaerobic stress front, there was a 21... 21 study that just came out last week in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance that was on football players. And it found that before the season, during, and then before the college football playoffs, so at the end of the season, their HRVs went down significantly. I find that wild. That's yeah. Very so they cool. were getting much more stressed as the season went on, um, likely due to the anaerobic uh, contribution of training as it goes on. That's well, I think I think it's really interesting because you brought up the anaerobic contribution of training, and my mind first goes to the, the thought of like living as yeah. a collegiate student athlete and how hard yeah. that is. And I'm like, well, as the season's going on, they're thinking about stress and bigger and bigger playoff games. They're having probably increased academic load, increased yeah. travel load, and I think it really adds in the idea that like what I love about HRV is it contextualizes all these different variables. You know, it's not just anaerobic stress. It's also looking at like sleep and life stress and, you know, academic stress and all these yeah. other different things going on. And the question is, how do you actually apply any of this? So there's a 2020 or 2012 study in the European Journal of Applied Physiology that was a case study on two triathletes doing 20 plus hour training weeks. Um, one athlete's HRV was relatively stable. One decreased over time. They didn't do any intervention. Um, the athletes who decreased underperformed actually activated a dormant dormant shingles one virus. of them right yes um, and then the other athlete did fine and was great so clearly there are some long-term things happening here at least within a training block and then this brings us to the coolest study i of love all. that study so this was in 2018 in the european journal of applied physiology so check this one out if you're on the fence um, and this was on 24 skiers at a high altitude training camp and i love how they structured so they essentially divided these skiers into three different groups which and they structured this in a way so this is applied physiology so this was working into like some of what the skiers were already doing which is a cool study design so 
in one of the groups, if the HRV stayed the same or increased, those skiers then went on to increase their training load. Um, for example, they may ski longer that day, they may increase the intensity. If in the other group, um, if their HRV decreased by more than 30%, uh, the skiers wound up taking a decreased training load day. And then if the HRV decreased two or more days in a row, they took a rest day. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was like, and those were the three different groups. I thought that was a really interesting study design and, and way and to I thought it was really training. cool. Yeah, really cool to think about how training applies. And really interesting. They had similar training loads over 15 days. So the HRV group and the non-HRV group, because it's not just, oh, you decrease. It's also, oh, you increase when it's time to go. This brings back last Wednesday, my, I woke up and my HRV was 69. Um, oh, look at that. That's nice. <laughs> and I felt, you know, I didn't, wasn't sure I was ready for a workout, but I was, I was ready to go. That's a good number for me. And I rocked it. Um, so over time, it kind of evens out the playing field. It just changes the distribution. Which I think is something for me that's really helpful to know. Cause sometimes I feel like when I'm wearing this, I'm like, I wonder if this is going to make me train less over time. And there's yeah. like an alien in my brain that's like, oh no, that's not a good thing. But I think it's actually, it, it was helpful to see that in form training and see how yeah. it kind of plays out in, in practice. And the question is, should you like, how much data do you need? Should you use this to plan every training? I mean, for me, was my Saturday just based on knowing my HRV was shit? Maybe it would have been better if not. Um, there's some questions about whether you should ever look at this before a race or anything like that. Um, and I think it brings up, you know, the the overall thinking about HRV right now is it's one of the many tools in a toolbox, um, but feel is most important. And so like, um, I think Alex Hutchinson had a great quote on this, um, I, from, quoting two triathlete coaches. I love this quote. Alex, Alex Hutchinson is also amazing on the points yeah. of science. Alex Hutchinson said, it's difficult to imagine using HRV to change training on a daily basis, as in a micro level by itself, without other variables alongside it. And presently, we wouldn't recommend it. However, when you use it together with other subjective measures and within the context of the training plan, it's extremely helpful and takes much of the guesswork away during those heavy training periods when you're questioning whether or not to adjust the load. I think that's a great summary about like, let's use this as a tool. Yeah. Let's not fundamentally restructure how we think about training as a result of this one variable, but let's like factor in all of these different considerations. And it goes, it's kind of like the identity conversation to bring it oh, that's, back. That's great. Yeah. You know, this is just one card and you include multitudes, you know, you're a magical creature, a magical athlete. Um, you're not just this number that it's reporting and certainly performance will not correlate with just the number, you know, it correlates with a ton of things that we can measure a ton of things we can't. And that's liberating. It liberates us all to be this magical creature, but also a little bit like, okay, keep it in context. Don't wear it. If it stresses you out, gather data before you act on it. I love that. Let's unleash our magical creatures. Yeah. Magical creatures. Woohoo. We love you guys. Woohoo. Bye.